This is part two of two on a concept model on baseball. Who is this podcast for? If you like to know why things fail or how to perfect whatever it is you're working on, you've come to the right place. This podcast is also for those of you who like baseball trivia and the Eureka moment, that moment of discovery. This one, part two, is focused on baseball origin history. But hang in there. For those not so much into baseball, it is a lesson in how to apply a concept model to whatever it is you are working on, professionally or creatively, by getting to the heart or essence of something like never before. How is it done? We use a discipline grounded in how the abstract world actually works. That is the secret to perfecting anything. The nature and structure of concept is the reason for that. Thus, my book, Concerning the Nature and Structure of Concept. Here is a quick outline. In part one, we got through six innings. So now we start with seventh inning stretch. A quick look or summary stretch on the history of baseball. Seventh inning, Avon Costello show us a bear of a problem. Eighth inning, rounders, it's not history. It's false advertising. Ninth inning, seven major strikes against the pretenders. Tenth inning, tag this, the origin of all of it. Eleventh inning, the twist in where American baseball really comes from. Twelfth inning, bat ball, oh yeah, proof. Thirteenth inning, 2020 hindsight from the 2020 World Series. Let's get started. Like I said in part one, there has to be something deeper. Most deconstructions center on the physical world, which has its limits. The deeper source of all of it comes from the abstract world, something we know so little about. But let me make this simple. Think of it not as the what or how, but the deeper question, the why. Here is the quote I'm known for. Ideas and concepts are two separate things. In fact, they're housed in two separate worlds. Now, if you think that quote is not obvious, well, it is. If you think that quote is obvious, it isn't. The obvious isn't. And that paradox, if you give it time, is what this show is about, because it will change how you understand the abstract engineering behind creation, the physical world, and reality itself. This will literally begin to change the way you understand why things are the way they are. And going deeper, it will begin to change the way you think forever. But enough with that heady stuff. We'll be right back and then we'll have some fun. Let's rock this concept thing. This is The Obvious Isn't. And I'm your host, founder of Concept Modeling, Winston Perez. Seventh inning stretch, a quick look or summary stretch on the history of baseball. In part one of our podcast, we did a concept model on baseball. 
but you can think of it as you would a fossil for a dinosaur. That fossil shows a bare bones deconstruction of the animal. Of course, our animal is baseball. Right now, we can use that concept model to let baseball tell us its own story, to reveal its own awesome secrets, to point us in the right direction and reveal to us some of the issues found in baseball history, the early history. For example, in our first podcast, we discovered that the name of the sport should be called Batball. How simple is that? But that is what the concept model dictates. That doesn't mean we should change the name. Baseball, by far, is the best name. But the two most obvious questions you can ask about baseball led me to the issues I found in the history of baseball. To me, that's amazing. So here's the short version about the history. If you don't get some of these names or haven't looked into the history, if you just do a tad on Google, you'll start to see some of these names popping up. Here is the short of it, and I'm paraphrasing what I've read. For most of this, I will use rounders to represent the other pretenders, because many have said that is the source of baseball. They tell us rounders had a ball, and they pitched that ball to a batter who had three strikes. And if they hit the ball, they could round a diamond circuit of bases. Meanwhile, if a player caught the ball, or even threw the ball and hit the base runner while they were in between bases, that player was out. Now, doesn't that sound like baseball? Pretty amazing, all coming pre-1828, and that year is really important. But there's a problem here. When you relate it to American baseball, except for getting a player out, none of that is true. None of it. And it is all so off base that it will take literally most of the rest of this podcast to unpack it all. So, rounders, one of the big candidates for being the source of baseball, is not the source of baseball. English baseball is not the source of baseball. Tutball is not the source of baseball. German ball, long ball, poison ball, which is the French version, stool ball, all of these and so many, many others are not the source of American baseball. And here's strike one. None of the claimants to the throne of being the origin of American baseball carry the concepts at the core of the sport. Here's what all these pretenders and all the games that came before 1828 do not have. They did not have baseballs, period. They did not have baseball bats, period. Did not have bases, and that's one of the key ones. None of these games actually had bases, as in baseball. And not even back in 1744, where a book mentions baseball. None of them had gloves. Pitching does not exist in any of these games. They have no strikes in any of these games. And let's go to a different, even deeper layer. The thing that makes it American, none of these sports had the attitude, the athleticism, the competition, the organization, or the inherent American spirit found in American baseball. It is not there. In other words, 
Baseball, as a competitive athletic sport, which can turn it into what it is today, a major and successful business. None of that was there. Now up to the stadium booth for an umpire call. If you have dozens of contenders, then you actually have no contenders. What do I mean by that? It tells you more about not the pretenders, but the nature of bat and ball itself. Its spontaneous ability anywhere in history, any time in history, any place in history. If there is a bat and a ball around, people are going to play with them. But here is the key question. If every country has pretty much demonstrated a rather independent tendency, if not spontaneous ability to launch some kind of bat and ball game, why should the USA be any different. It's not. It's like water. If there's water around, people are going to jump in it. And if you think of bat as a stick, we go back to prehistory for sure. We're back. Strike two. So let me say it this way. Where are the stats in rounders? They aren't there. Rounders, English baseball, German ball, Scandinavian long ball, Francis poison ball, all these games before 1828, none of them had stats. American baseball was, is, and will always be about stats. It's in the DNA, and you probably know from anthropology, there have been a lot of humanoids, like Neanderthal men, but it turns out they didn't become us. It has to be in the DNA and it wasn't. Now, some may be thinking, well, the game was in its infancy before 1828. You can't expect stats. But as our concept model shows, that is the essence of baseball. That is one thing that makes it different from almost any other game. Other sports do produce stats, but it's really like an afterthought. In baseball, it is the stats that actually produce the sport. That is the amazing twist, and we can see that in our concept model. And this infancy talk, this idea it was early in the sport, the Greeks had their Olympics, and that's about stats. Rome had its Colosseum, all about competition, folks, even if, well, some of the losers didn't actually go home. And here's another proof, cricket. Cricket was a sport it was competitive. It had fans and even heroes of sorts, but it's a different sport altogether. So the infancy argument doesn't hold water in light of world history. You know, folks back then weren't incapable. They could have turned it into a sport, but they didn't. It has to do with inherent DNA. Does this or that game have the stuff to grow it into a sport we call American baseball? With these pretenders, the DNA of American baseball is just not there and was never going to be there, period. Here's strike three. In fact, this is what's amazing. American baseball isn't even American baseball till 38 years after the first or second official game. Let me say that again. In fact, American baseball isn't American baseball till 38 years after the first or second official game was played. 
There lies the truth, and as the bard might say it, the rub. How can these other claimants be the origin of baseball when baseball itself was not baseball till 38 years after the first or second official game was played in the USA? So all those statements I made, you may not believe them, but they're all part of the obvious isn't. They are not obvious until they are. But I promise you, it will all be obvious shortly. We'll be right back. Let's go up to the stadium booth for some takeaways. It is a principle in concept modeling. Everything becomes obvious in hindsight. That means it is all obvious. We just can't see it until the work is perfected, until we can see it in hindsight. In anything you see, touch, or do, the physical is the easiest to see. The abstract is not. But like everything in existence, American baseball is not found just in the physical things. It's found in the abstract. You want to perfect something you're working on? Go into the abstract. Go into a world in which you discover a lot of contradictions. Why? Because the abstract world works radically different than the physical world. And we are just not used to it. That is why paradox exists there. It's the abstract world that dictates how the physical world works. Seventh inning, Abbott and Costello show us a bear of a problem. Here's a list of stuff that makes the whole thing on the history of baseball a little bit nutty. Agendas. In Germany, you must believe it started in the fatherland, yeah? In England, we will play it on the beaches. We will play it on the landing grounds. We will play it on the fields and in the streets. We will play it in the hills. We will never surrender our claim to baseball. Or maybe it's Coopertown, USA. You mean just down the street? Golly, Mr. Local Cooperstown Drugstore Manager wearing a funny paper boat-shaped white hat. You mean I can have an all-American hot dog and a root beer float right here at this counter inside your pristine drugstore? Then I can walk to the Baseball Hall of Fame from here? Is this heaven, Mr. Drugstore Manager? Agenda. Agenda makes the history nutty. Now up to the stadium booth for an umpire call. What you just heard is my agenda. And in concept modeling, you must always look for those agendas. And even your own agenda can be a problem. Knowing that will help you find the true essence of a thing. We're back. To shorten this to under 700 hours, I'm going to let two guys, as it turns out, who probably hold the key to the essence of the problem with baseball origin history more than anyone else on the planet ever did. They're truly the PhDs of comedy, Abbott and Costello. Remember them? <laughs> Does what I say surprise you? Even if you haven't seen them, Costello is the short, funny one. Abbott is the tall, straight man, popular here in the U.S. in the 40s and early 50s. 
According to Wikipedia, they were the highest paid entertainers in the world during World War II. As Lawrence Welk might have said, World War II. So maybe it's been years since you saw their routine, but you will recognize this often repeated scenario. I'll just do my version. Abbott and Costello find themselves in their Grand Wilderness Hotel suite at a luxury mountain resort, about to embark on their great wilderness vacation the very next morning. It is nighttime, and they're talking in their room, planning the last details. A little bit about this being bear country and how Costello doesn't want to come across any bears. No bears, he says. This will be great, Abbott assures him. Fresh air, nature, tomorrow we become frontiersmen. But no bears, Costello insists. But suddenly the lights go out. Abbott wants to find out the problem from the front desk, but he doesn't exactly tell Costello he is leaving the room. Abbott leaves the room from one door, while, of course, a bear steps into the room from another door. He is man-sized or bigger, walking upright on two feet. But because it's dark, Costello can't see anything. So he starts fumbling around the room, looking for Abbott, using his outstretched hands. In other words, he can only feel his way around the room. And sure enough, when he reaches out again, he taps the back of the bear, and he thinks he's found Abbott. Then he says things like, Oh, there you are. For a second, I was worried. Wow, you put on your outdoor coat already? We don't head out till tomorrow. But come over here. I think I have some matches with our camping equipment. Of course, the bear follows too close for comfort. But Costello doesn't get it yet and says, Wow, you really need some mouthwash. Your breath is horrible. Finally, he lights a match, turns, and sees the bear for the first time. And you guess the rest. And he runs off full throttle with a bear chasing him right out the door. That represents a typical scenario for Abbott Costello. But right there, hence the first significant problem with the history of baseball. First, it's an expected Costello-like mistake. Researchers are looking for baseball. So anything they touch in a book, in a novel, in a newspaper, anything written or drawn in illustrations must be in baseball. So when they do that, they find something. They decide it looks like baseball, so it must be right. But what they find is the bear instead. In Hollywood script writing, there is a saying, and I am paraphrasing, you must be willing to kill all the words to kill the scene you love, even if you have worked on it a long time. We all make mistakes, so you have to be willing to let all the work you did, all the training you have, all the all you have, let it go in exchange for letting baseball, not the superficial, reveal its deeper truth. Now up to the stadium booth for a takeaway. Up front, I got to stress one thing that is really, really important. The historian work on baseball is actually very cool. It's well done. It's a demonstration of solid, hard-fought research, great thinking, and serious work. 
the methodology used by researchers in most cases is great, and I love it. On the other hand, and you probably knew I was going to say that, and historians also know what I'm about to say, some of the history is agenda-driven. One subtle but obvious proof, you can tell by just reading the statements. Some historians are looking for the source of baseball in Europe. Some, as we all know, have been looking for the source of baseball in America. No, no, no. All of that smacks of agenda, however small, however unintentional. It will lead us to the wrong conclusion. A spaceship headed from Earth to Mars will be hundreds of thousands of miles off target if they are even one degree off at the starting point. That's why there are course corrections in space travel. That one degree in baseball history, you won't believe it, is the word in. That's right, the word in. You can't look for baseball in this country or in that country. You can't look for baseball in this game or that game. You simply have to look for baseball, not baseball in this or that. But you can't avoid that mistake unless you have a fossil in front of you. In our case, unless you have a concept model of baseball in front of you before you start your look back. We're back. Right now, I want to give a shout out to David Block, who has an exceptional book called Baseball Before We Knew It. Go buy that sucker. It's kind of fun reading. I really wouldn't have been able to do this last segment, at least part of it, without his work, period. Doesn't mean, however, that I agree with everything David says. But the great thing about David in his book, he says two things that are so important. He says that a lot of the research is based on limited materials that are out there. That is an important, if not critical, point. Perhaps a lot of you have a sense of the history of baseball already, but there's an asterisk here. Here's what I mean. If you're researching World War II, you have millions, if not billions of documents, interviews, everything to go through. In baseball, there's probably less than 600 documents that relate to the history of baseball. I could be wrong. But most of those aren't even significant. They're just mentions of the word. The second thing about David, you get a sense of it from reading his book, that there's a humility about him. I'm paraphrasing, but in his book, he suggests that some of the research may have to be updated. That's what we're trying to do today. Now up to the stadium booth for a takeaway. With all the attempts the books, the articles, you know we're bound to make mistakes. And the history they found on baseball is just fascinating. It just happens to be wrong. So what is it that we're doing differently? We're looking at the essence, the abstract nature of the sport. The essence of baseball is not found in words or novels or writing or quotes. But let me say it from our concept modeling perspective, letting baseball tell us its own story. Baseball, the essence of baseball couldn't care less about someone's opinion, academic, research-based, or otherwise. It couldn't care about baseball experts, TV personalities, baseball players, not even encyclopedias, novels, or articles. And it doesn't even care if you are a concept modeling guy like me. Fact. 
Baseball is baseball. It's like H2O or gravity. It just is what it is. Gravity couldn't care less what we think is true or not about it. If we called it by another name, a chihuahua, it wouldn't change its essence or nature. Newton may be the greatest scientist of all time. I consider him the greatest. We still used his work to get us to the moon, but his view of gravity as a force was replaced by Einstein's view of it as a warp in space-time. By the way, that too may change for the record. Now, nothing in those statements makes any of their work less or them less great. They are the greatest, but reality is not dictated by research. Essence dictates reality. It stands apart. It is we who have to discover what that essence is. Essence is found both in the physical and the abstract. That's why we did the concept modeling first. In concept modeling, capturing the essence of something is what gives you these insights. You're going to build a product, concept model, the abstract side of it. You're not looking for words, for shapes, even a bat and a ball, surprisingly. You are looking for the essence of the sport, which most of the time, and with almost everything in life, is not found in the physical, like bat and ball, but in the abstract things like specific athletic skills found at the heart of the particular sport. Now, that kind of work also has a proof, and it's in this fact. Essence always turns out to be obvious. Eighth inning. Rounders, it's not history. It's false advertising. If you know anything about the history of baseball, you know that most of the time they say that Rounders is a source of American baseball. Hogwash. It's just not true. Here's what most of the research states online. It's like a religious mantra. This one happens to be, as I pointed out, from Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes, that's right. Britannica, as in Britain. Oh, that Britannica. Here's what they say. The descent of baseball from rounders seems indisputably clear-cut. Look, Britannica is great. So it's not just them. So listen to the argument, and I'm kind of throwing it all in here so you get a snapshot of it. Well, it's Rounders had a baseball bat. No, it did not. And it's categorized as a bat and ball game. So it must mean they are related. No, they are not. And since it came first, in other words, before American baseball, our American baseball must be related to Rounders. So almost everything you read suggests Rounders is a source of baseball except a few guys out there. First, David Block, and this is a quote, baseball from rounders is an impossibility. That, I gotta tell you, was a big relief to me because I assumed he believed that rounders was a source of baseball too, until I dug into his work. His work was confirmation of what concept modeling baseball itself was suggesting to me. It's a lot to go into, and I hope I have this right. He simply makes the point that Rounders actually was preceded by English baseball. Now, David is great. I agree with him that Rounders is not the source of American baseball, but I also disagree. To me, English baseball as the source of American baseball 
is an impossibility as well. To explain that, I need to look at rounders from our new concept modeling point of view. And as I said from the get-go, let's let the essence of baseball serve as a guiding light into all of this research. In 1828, a book called The Boy's Own Book, which has become the Rosetta Stone for rounders as a source of baseball, is released or published in London to great acclaim, and deservedly so. It is a book designed for adolescents. It covers all the different games, all the activities that are good for youth to get involved in. The second edition, also, by the way, published in 1828, now has a description of rounders that looks like what is probably an American version of a bat and ball game. The U.S. was already playing the bat in a ball game by that time for sure. Here, let me read this to you. This is the second edition, not the first, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I could read it all to you, but it gets a little technical and boring. So let me read these three lines. And I'm going to inject a few things so you understand what they're saying. Just one note, the out players are the ones in the outfield. The in players are the ones up to bat. Here are those three lines. In the west of England, this is one of the most favorite sports with a bat and ball. In the metropolis, boys play a game very similar to it called feeder. Here's the second line. So one of the party which is out, who's called the pecker or feeder, places himself at E. That's kind of like our pitching mound. He tosses the ball gently towards A, kind of like our home plate, on the right of which one of the in party places himself and strikes a ball, if possible, with the bat. So here's the third line. If, however, the feeder or any of the out players who may happen to have the ball strike him with it in his progress from A to B, from B to C, C to D, D to A, he is out. So basically they're saying with that line that you can actually throw the ball directly at the player and hit him and he'd be out. Also, this is important, but I will save this for later. One other line basically reads, if one misses three times, he is out. So that should give you a sense of it. The biggest problem is that right next to some of those lines is a diagram or an illustration. A little bit different, but very, very close to a USA-type diamond-shaped layout for the field. A big wow. If you read the whole description, it sounds complete. A perfectly formed game looking like American baseball. But in that very first line, there are already three big strikes, folks. To me, this is the most amazing sentence in all of baseball origin history. Strike one. It says that this is one of the most favorite sports. Yet the rest of the sentence is basically proving it is not. Here's what I mean. It states that in the west of England, so it's particular to an area of England, thus not a favorite in three-fourths of the country. Strike two. In the very same sentence, they mention another game called feeder that was played in the city. So instead of rounders being played in the city, feeder was the favorite there. Rounders is basically not a favorite in the city. By its own admission, its popularity rating keeps shrinking in the very same sentence. 
it's only in part of England, and it's not even played in the city in that part of England. So does that make it a favorite? I don't think so. Strike three. Amazingly, in the same line, it also says it is like feeder. Well, feeder, I believe, had five bases, and it's pretty much a round shape. Even though there's much, much more, that is a killer strikeout because it's comparing itself to feeder. So why even mention round-shaped feeder when its own illustration is suspiciously showing a diamond shape, something we probably were already using in American baseball. I'll get to that. By the way, no countryside landscape inspires a diamond-shaped field, and Rounders, by its own description, admits it was played in the countryside. Now up to the stadium booth for an umpire call. In the USA, all of this would be part of a crime scene on CSI in which the suspect's fingerprints are all over a still smoke-in-the-barrel gun. It's also a Freudian-like slip. They feel guilty putting the diamond shape in there, so they try a bit too hard to make it all legit. An unconscious but strategic mistake. By the way, folks, or jury, it's going to get worse. A lot worse for Rounders. We're back. Here's a big clue. Rounders is not mentioned in their first edition. So what does that tell you? Rounders was not that important. David Block, in his book, suggests there is almost no history of Rounders before that time. In that year... There's a company in Boston linked with a partner in New York City that wants to reprint a version of the boys' own book in the United States. That edition contains the description of rounders we just read that looks like American baseball. It is that description that launches a thousand ships, verbatim copies, and repeats in books for the next hundred plus years. How did that happen? Now, one way to look at it slightly negative is that in London, only 40 years after they got kicked out of the United States by this upstart country, that they might want to prove that England was a source of American baseball. But more likely, these guys, publishers, are marketers. Marketers. So they were going to include something in that book for American markets. And what did they include? something that looks a little like American baseball. It's only logical that's what publishers do. What are we talking about? Only a couple of lines in their description. But those are massive. And a shape that looks like a diamond, which I find ridiculous. I don't buy that for a second. No way. Not possible. And there's no way you should. No way. No matter who tells you, it wasn't diamond-shaped, if you know anything about the true history of rounders. Probably the reason it's called rounders is because the layout was round. Just as a personal note, you know, when I started this research, look, part one took me a couple of days, a couple of weeks, right? But when I looked at the history, I got confused. Why? Because the first thing I saw was a box in one shape for rounders. In fact, the pitcher or feeder stands and pitches towards an area between what for us would be home plate and first base. In other words, folks, 
it actually had five bases. The second research I saw was rounders as a pentagon shape. The third one was rounders as a round shape. Then suddenly I turned to this second edition, which is going to the U.S. market, and suddenly there's a diamond shape for rounders. If there are more than five different descriptions of the layout of the sport, which rounder has, that makes the diamond shape extremely suspect. But here's the key. You want a sport in there that looks like the game that they are playing in the USA. Something's going wacky, especially because rounders had no history before that, as David Block says. Now, these guys were smart. They're not idiots. And if you've seen all the origin history of baseball, so much of it is agenda-driven. Well, it comes from France. It comes from Germany. Well, it comes from wherever. This is actually not Wikipedia's fault. But here is what Wikipedia says right now. Rounders is referenced in a 1744 children's book called A Little Pretty Pocketbook, where it was called Baseball. Folks, that's like saying surfing is referenced in a 1744 children's book, where it was called Water Polo. It is either rounders or baseball. Don't say baseball and then suddenly say, oh, they really mean rounders. I don't buy that, not for a second. And you shouldn't either. Why don't historians notice that there is an agenda here of a book that is going to be sold in the United States, which might have been a relatively good market for them? And what's the goal of publishing? You've got to publish things that relate to the audience that you are targeting. And a diamond shape is a good thing for a book going to the USA. Now up to the stadium booth for an umpire call. I don't know that we can ever find the physical proof, but if anyone out there can find it, it would be in the correspondence between the USA publishers and the London publishers, expressing interest but also discussing this exact issue and asking questions that publishers would have asked, what they always ask. We have a bat and a ball game here. Let me tell you about it. Is there something in the next edition that might service our readers? Something like this? They would have given them a description of some bat and ball games that were played in Boston or New York. Now, those two cities already had a game being played in the streets. In fact, there's a 1791 ordinance that proves that. And if you were playing in the city, like Boston or New York, that play area layout had to be a diamond. Perhaps it started as a triangle, but eventually ending up as a diamond shape. The street dictates that. Even using the cross streets would dictate that layout. London publishers would have looked for a game that was close enough. And since in rounders, the shapes were different, they could see it as a diamond shaped. Why not? We're back. There are two sports that you should know about. One is English baseball, which predates rounders. If you look at the real diagrams of English baseball, it has more of a round feel. But here's the important thing. If you go to English baseball where they didn't use a bat, they actually used their hand as a bat. Here's what you find. There are not four bases. There are not five bases. There are six bases. But guess what? One of those bases is actually listed as an A and a B. 
In other words, it is a zone. And that zone becomes, quote, home plate. In other words, home plate was actually a zone, not a plate. So they actually technically had six or seven bases in English baseball. And when you look at the field, it actually looks a little more round. That's not American baseball. Also, I think it's Tutball, but Tutball had a circular field. In other words, they were thinking round in terms of the layout of the playing field. And here's the other piece of evidence that Henry Chadwick suddenly reveals. When you look at the history of baseball in the United States, Chadwick is considered very important. Sometimes he was called the father of baseball. Chadwick, who actually played the game and was around where they played the sport in England, describes it as a round-shaped field. Pretty good evidence, I would say. So here's what I think. Rounder takes the round aspect of English baseball and creates a different game that is really simplified. Then suddenly, this book, Destined for America, where they are playing this game of baseball, like baseball anyways, try to create something that looks a little bit better for that market. Of course they did. That's what publishers do. They know it's going to the U.S. And knowing that the U.S. game was played in the cities, right, where you had diamond-shaped playing fields in the city and added that shape. That's what I think happened, folks. Now up to the stadium booth for an umpire call. But here's an umpire call, because there's something amiss here. Because it was 1849, as David Block mentions, that they reverted their description back. From 1828, you jump to 1849 in the same book, and suddenly the description reverts back to a shape that is a box and one, not diamond. In other words, there's more than one description of the sport of rounders in the very book they claim to be the source, the boy's own book. Excuse me? The problem with the descriptions of rounders is that there's so many variations. Something weird is going on. Folks, it would be a little bit like having American basketball in some descriptions as having four baskets, not two. And in some other cases, having six baskets. At the very least, that first description is faulty. What does this come to? What's the ultimate proof? To believe that rounders actually had a diamond shape is to believe that rounders is the only sport in history that regresses over time. It goes backwards, gets less organized over time. And that is crazy. Did anyone notice that? Or were the agendas too strong? I'm looking for the sport in something else. We're back. Sports move forward. They don't regress. That tells you something, and again, I will say it. It is not a historical question at all. It's a marketing question. These guys were publishers. They were publishing a book for kids on how to play some games. What is the game that was in the U.S. at that time? A game like baseball. What shape did that one have? Because it was played in the city streets. It had a diamond shape. If we're saying Chadwick was so important to baseball in the USA, you should take his word that rounders was round shape. Folks, try this. It's almost impossible to create a round shape using just four sticks in the ground. You can't do it. My assumption is that people who played rounders in England 
wanted a description that was more like the version they actually played in England. And by 1849, the publishers were eager to oblige them. The real shape of rounders is round. Of course it was. Now up to the stadium booth for a takeaway. In that sense, the proof is overwhelming once you remove the agenda. And I have that too, but my agenda is different because I'm trying to show you a discipline that shows you how to deconstruct something, break it down to its essence so you can perfect it. But when I did that on baseball, suddenly all the mistakes, a lot of it agenda-driven, showed up. Ninth inning. Seven major strikes against the pretenders. Major strike one. Bat and ball as a category, or even ball as a category. This is a subtle shift in understanding concept. The category of bat and ball is exclusionary, not inclusionary. If you make that concept mistake, it's a big problem. What do I mean by exclusionary as a concept, not just a word? It's meant to keep other games, other things out. It's not really telling you anything about something inside the category. Anything inside that category is not automatically related. It just isn't. Even though you think they're related, they are not. Let me give you an example. Let's say we had a category called water sports. That's to exclude land sports and perhaps a few air sports if you want to get technical. But it doesn't mean that water polo is related to surfing, right? They're both included in that category, but they're not related at all. Otherwise, you might be able to say that surfing is the source of water polo. And let me show you some examples of why you could say that. They both involve water, okay. They both involve people getting wet, okay. They both involve people swimming. They both require that you wear a bathing suit, probably. So, we could continue. They're both athletic sports. They both require the use of your arms to paddle. And if you wanted to, you could create a list of how they're related, but they're not related. Bat and ball are just two of the most basic things on the planet, especially when you consider a bat is actually a stick. And you're going to prehistory with that, folks. We're back. So that category, bat and ball, doesn't tell us anything. And you have to be very, very careful because it naturally pushes people into the assumption that anything that came before any other bat and ball sport is the origin of the latter bat and ball sport. And that is the argument that happens when people unofficially but widely used a category called bat and ball. Like a category of water, it's just too broad. So the category itself is probably what leads to some of the mistakes here. Major strike two. Words. Here is the most important one. But to explain this about words, I need to go back to our guys, Abbott and Costello. And here they are. Give them a listen. But you know they give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names. You know, a lot of funny names. You know, like uh, Sticky Fields, Sticky Fields, uh, Goofy Dan, Booby Bobber, Booby Bobber. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, let's see now. We have on our team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find uh, out, the guy's name. And that, uh -huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's name? Well, I should. Well, you tell me the guy's name's on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You ain't said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. You know the guy's I'll... name's on the baseball team? Yes. Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Why are you asking me? For? I don't know. That's fantastic. It is one of the greatest comedy routines of all time, bar none. But in that Abbott and Costello skit, the who is used as a name, not a pronoun. In other words, the word who doesn't mean what Costello thinks it means. That is the problem with the research. Guess what, folks? Base does not mean base as we know it back then in the 1700s or before. Base means something else. So base comes from the Latin word basis, which, yes, at first glance and naturally contains the word base in it, but it really means, and especially back then, pedestal. And the proof of that statement is overwhelming. And this proof is actually right in the book that they are using to make their case. Now up to the stadium booth for an umpire call. You need to go deeper into the essence of a word once you find it and not just take it at face value. Words change their meaning over time. And there's simple proof. Let me give you two of them for now. Folks, historians point to a little pretty pocketbook published in 1744 as the first mention of baseball because it uses the word baseball in a poem. But that's not baseball. It's not even close. A little pretty pocketbook has an illustration of kids playing a game with a ball. One looks about to throw the ball to someone else standing in front of one of three bases on the field. But look at those again. Those are not bases there, folks. Look at them. They are three pedestals. They look to be like three-foot-high little Washington monuments, not bases. We're back. A second proof? The ultimate proof is also in two other sports. One sport today has the exact remnant of the word base as a pedestal, and it's definitely not American baseball. It's called cricket. Cricket that began back then had pedestals back then and still does. Cricket is said by some to be derived from stool ball. Stool ball probably precedes all of these in history. It started out by using a tree stump as a pedestal. And the idea was for someone to throw a ball, underhand by the way, to try to hit that stump while somebody with a stick tried to stop them from hitting the stump. And cricket doesn't have bases. It has pedestals. Those pedestals are actually called stumps. They look like this. Three poles stuck in the ground with two connector plates or bales set on top of the poles, thus connecting the three poles together. A little bit like crossbars, keeping them in place, if you will. It's the bales that a particular pitcher is trying to hit, dislodge, or knock down. The batter in cricket is trying to protect the pedestal while he tries to hit the ball out into the field. That is a pedestal, folks, not a base. All these sports, they suggest, are the origin for baseball, 
like rounders, English baseball with space between the words, stool ball, tut ball, trap ball, cricket, especially town bowl, by the way, folks. None of them have bases. None. For the record, some researchers mention stones. Those are not bases either. By the way, when you see the descriptions, like trap ball in 1811, there's an illustration you can look up. They don't have bases. Those are little pyramids made of rocks. My gut is, and this is strictly opinion, by the way, is that in ancient days, the first pedestals were rocks, sometimes assembled into the shape of a pyramid. I'll also touch upon that again in my roundup of the origin of all of this. Base does not mean base. It's not till Will Wheaton, he's one of the key figures of baseball in the USA, gives his interview in the late 1800s when he reflects back on the Knickerbocker rules and their creation. Those are the rules for American baseball he helped create and how they played baseball, early baseball, in the cities, in all different places. That interview is the first place where he mentions they had bases, which he explains as bags filled with sand. There you go. Now that statement is so unimportant, it makes it the truth. And what I mean by that is no one was thinking, oh, base, we have to be looking at that. That's really important. I better watch what I say about it. He was just telling the truth. Well, they started to create bases, bags filled with sand. But that is the first time you're hearing real bases, bottom line. And that only happens in America. And the proof is also another one of these contenders, town ball, which they say came over from Europe, where it was called rounders, doesn't have bases. When they show illustrations of town ball, all you see are sticks in the ground. What does that mean? Pedestals, folks. That goes back to pedestals. Rounders? had sticks in the ground too. Is a stick in the ground a base? Is a bear in the room Abbott? No, no, no. The reason there are sticks in the ground is probably because it's a pain in the neck to create pedestals around the field. I know that this should be pretty common sense, but if you have a stick, it's not really oriented towards the foot, is it? It's really oriented towards grabbing it with your hand. So John Thor, awesome historian, points out how important William Wheaton was. And he says William Wheaton should be in the Hall of Fame. I believe he says that. Uh, He helped set up the historically significant rules for the Barker's Baseball Club in 1845. Just as importantly, he did the same nine years earlier for the Gotham Club. To me, the failure to have him inducted in the Hall of Fame is unbelievable. Major strike three. Baseball bats, baseball gloves, and baseball baseballs. Let's take another step and look at what all these pretenders do not have. They don't have baseball bats. They don't. They don't have bases. We covered that. They don't even have gloves. We don't have gloves till I think it's 24 to 29 years after the first official baseball game in this country. None of these sports had baseballs period. Not even close. And the simple logical proof around that is this. In those games from Europe, they take the ball and they throw it at people. Imagine Aroldis Chapman doing that. Now imagine a 105 mile an hour throw 
as you are turning the corner to get to home plate. And Chapman is determined to get you out. He'd probably break some jaws that way. You're going to be in a hospital, folks, and you're going to be pretty bruised, if not in serious trouble. Proof, we don't allow that in professional sports today with super athletes involved. No one is there throwing the ball, trying to hit the base runner while he's running in between bases. Baseballs don't exist till American baseball, or what we call stickball, starts to take off in the United States. Major strike four. The Tudor Pro League. There's a theory baseball comes from the Tudor Dynasty, because shortly thereafter and during that period, the word baseball seems to appear The year is 1744. A book is published, and it's amazing, regardless. Amazing book, folks. It's called A Little Pretty Pocket Book. It's by John Newberry, and it's an awesome book. Side note here, there's always this talk that medieval parents didn't want their kids to play and that parish ministers frowned upon baseball and other games played by kids. Yet, right there, the fact that there's a book and the fact that there's always books for kids on what games and how to play them, which means games that were not invented overnight but have been around, disproves that theory. It's ridiculous. The same thing with the minister being the bad guy because he doesn't want kids playing in the churchyard. Why? Because a lot of these churches had stained glass windows or things could get broken playing these games. And if you're writing a novel the way Jane Austen did and you need a bad guy, they become a pretty good candidate. So if it's written once in a novel, then suddenly the minister becomes the bad guy. Well, you need a bad guy. But if you're referencing a book, one of the most famous books, then it becomes almost a religion in itself. All ministers are bad guys. All parents don't want their kids to play. Yet suddenly there is a book that's for kids and teaching them how to play. So there's a big, fat contradiction there. That side note aside, Newberry, as I said, became famous for writing kids' books. First of all, the researchers say it is the first book to use the actual word baseball. So here's where one of the notions that baseball was invented by the Tudor dynasty comes from. But can any who did the research see this happening? Let's go back in time to the playing field of our imagination again, with a couple of game announcers sitting by Tudor Memorial Stadium, also called the Hampton Court Stadium, in 1744. If you have just joined us, we are present live at the Hampton Court Palace Stadium in London. We have our booth up here between the battlements, looking down on a beautiful playing field. It has been a bright, sunny day so far. A perfect summer day for a game of, what do you call it, Leslie? Bull. No sign of the plague this weekend. Great day for some bull, indeed. The Tudor Purple and Gold Sox versus the Northern York Yankshires. I am Mr. Vince Darcy, your play-by-play man, sitting next to Leslie Bingley, our color commentator. We are so proud 
to have with us today a guest commentator, Jane Austen herself. I am all astonishment. My idea of good company is a company of clever and well-informed people who have a great deal of conversation. This will do very well. Oh, stats. You must mean the game stats. Eh, Miss Austin? Well, we are all delighted. Welcome. Speaking of which, how do these teams stack up, Leslie? Yes, yes. Both excellent teams. Excellent records this year. The P&G Sox come in with a record of 27 wins and 5 losses. Almost the exact opposite of last year. While the NY Shriers are close behind at 25 and 7. Right on their post-dynasty heels, if you will. What accounts for the dramatic turnaround for the Sox? Excellent trades made the last couple of years. And what about the star pitching acquisition? Made any difference? Have you heard of her, Jane? I read somewhere recently she is absolutely the difference. That acquisition is on the mound now. Indeed, your viewers are in for a treat. A pitcher of some consequence. Elegant, well-bred, catapult power of a delicate arm. There's no shying away from it now. Time to show the audience hordes why this one is paid the big shillings, eh? My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell your viewers how ardently I admire and love that eight-year-old 100-mile-an-hour-plus fastball pitcher. The golden arm of sports royalty. Pitcher extraordinaire. Young... They're on the mound, kicking around a little dirt to establish a better foothold. No rubber, no rubber there. Have to build it yourself, you do. Knows what to do, that pitcher does. This is what the fuss is all about. A pitcher with only one loss this season. Outstanding record the last two seasons. With a 2.6 ERA, 293 strikeouts, 137 complete games, and 40 shutouts. Count them. 40. Strike. That was a 95-mile-an-hour curveball. What do you think, Jane? Emotions and childhood are feelings. They come and go, but the reality of this pitcher and this game may stay with us forever. She is a woman of note, of incomparable value. Excellent form. Excellent form. Pretty Miss Polly comes into this game with no losses. Overall, the team is 25-7, and seven, and it is 9-1 in their last 10 games. Yes, and show me no prejudice, Mr. Darcy. You must concede an eight-year-old female who can hurl a 95-plus spitball is of consequence this year of 1744. Of some consequence, yes. I believe they are about to dedicate a book to her and her brother. Leslie, is that who I think it is coming to the plate? Yes, indeed. Hang on, hang on. This is where it gets exciting. He is four-time MVP. Most valuable prince, is it? Ha ha ha. A little raw humor there, eh? I do hear rumors they are ready to pronounce and crown him king. But I would 
coming here with a .406 batting average, 30 stolen bases, 45 home runs, and a 135 shillings per year endorsement contract from Kilol Hun's breakfast cereal. Impressive. All of 10 years old. Darling, Lord Master Tommy. So very proud looking, standing there at home base. Lord Master Tommy, he is at the ready. Looking into the royal box seats, I see the commissioner of the league is here. King George himself. Is that Vicar Collins next to him? Vicar Collins of De Burg province. Conceited, pompous, narrow-minded, silly. Still sucking up, I see, to the royal kings and ladies. How dreadful. But where's your dignity, Darcy? Is he not found in your circles at time? Defend him. Leslie, I am in no humor ever to give consequence to men who are slighted by female novelists. That proud is he? Tommy is at the plate. This is a rare one, ladies and gentlemen. Rival siblings going at each other. One on the mound going for her second consecutive shutout and one on the plate going for 43 games with a hit in each. Both sports royalty, beloved by the fans, dare I say, subjects. You surprise me, Jane, with my pride. I never imagined this. You, a fan following bowl, eyeing the plate, selecting her pitch, and now staring Tommy down. Eyes intense, building, focusing, ready, hiding her hand grip, disguising her pitch, bringing the ball and skinny arm together, winding up, rotating back, knee snapping up to the chin, and... And there's the throw. Excellent form. Unbelievable control, speed, power. That was a 105-mile-an-hour fastball, and that just sailed inches from Master Tommy's royal head. I'm fond of saying it isn't what we say or think that defines us, but what we do. The peasant crowd is loving it. Indeed, but Tommy is steaming. Ooh, keep the discipline, boy. It looks like Tommy is pointing. Yes, he's pointing in the direction of the stained glass front window of the church directly over the left field battlements. Oh, look, in the royal box seats there. Vicar's taking note. Not pleased, not pleased at all. Take note, Jane Austen. Vicar, not pleased, marauding crowd, loving it. You gave me a character idea, Leslie. Thank you. Back with the picture. Watch for pretty Miss Polly's spitball. Indeed. Good catch. It's illegal. Or at least there's talk of that. But insiders say they'll delay that decision perhaps 300 years. But as the Queen's daughter now, dare I offer some royal insight? No umpire will dare call that pretty little girl out. You're dead on. With the count now two balls and two strikes. Remember, there are no bats used in this game. Only Tommy's hand or arm is legal. But look, she's winding up again. 
Her little hesitation there as she eyes the first pedestal with those piercing blue eyes. Next, she's going to home plate. And now, stockings, ruffles, all on display. She rotates her purple and gold gown, twisting her petite body round, knee up, arms drawing back, sheer power on display. And a little more from pretty Miss Polly. All the four feet tall. I can see her left leg extending a good three and a half feet in front of her, stretching her petticoat to the limit. It must be how she's getting such power. And there it is, her sinker curving up, then straight down. But he clobbers it, Tommy does. Lovely ball, lovely ball. Oh my, with that colossal hit, it looks like Tommy has snapped his own arm in two. No big deal, it happens all the time. Turns boys into marauding men, even knights of the realm, if you will. Tommy's rounding the bases now. See, not a bad name for a new sport. But look here. Look at Polly run. Dear diary, note, Polly is waving off all the other adult players, or she is going for the ball herself. Royal silk shoes, stockings, not a problem. Not a problem at all. My friend Elizabeth walks the fields in mud while reading a good book. Finds it no trouble either. Why would Polly? It tells me she's not going to let Tommy damage her ERA win and loss legacy. Yes, for those new to the sport, you can out the runner by striking them directly with the ball. I believe that that is what she is going to do. She is closing in on the ball. It's in her petite fingers, and she fires it right at Tommy. Smack into the face. Another zinger. A girl likes to cross and hammer it a little every now and again. Legal play by the book. He's out of there. Uh, Leslie? That Polly, a regular Bo Jackson she is. Leslie? Yes, Leslie. The girl's got a cannon all the way from the palace warning track she did. Leslie, what? Tommy is really out. I mean, out cold. Oh, dear. I see it now. Rather dormant, isn't he? While they're checking on him, Jane, besides your writing, what other things have you been up to? Which of all my important nothings shall I tell you first? Tell us about that game you're forming. Rounders or something? Is that the game where you will use a stick or cudgel to hit with instead of just your hand or arm? Oh, I think Jane has an excellent idea. Excellent. Keep the purity of this ball game intact while we let them set up that silly rounders thing. Then ship it off and send it to America or something. To the towns over there. Maybe call it town ball. <laughs> Careful, Leslie. We have a guest here with very strong opinions on the matter. My good opinion, Leslie. Once lost, is lost forever. Yes, I hear that London publishers are drooling to get into the U.S. market. For what do we live but to make sport of our neighbors and laugh at them in our turn? Now that's a direct quote from one of your novels, Miss Austen. Heavens, now I am vexed. Half agony, half hope. Apology. I have misjudged you. Capital. Still, I must say, stupid men are the only ones worth knowing after all. Humor. Love you, Jane. Tommy is still down on the field. We are sitting here most ardently impressed with our guest commentator, Miss Austin. Where's nearest hospital? St. Giles. Capital. Capital. 
That is in Norwich, a hundred miles north. Oh, heavens. Best be on their way. A good four days ride. Maybe so. I think this game is over. Enjoyed color commentating, did you? I must learn to be content with being happier than I deserve, but must go. Bye. Good boy. Ha ha ha. She is a tolerable one, that Jane is. And I am getting word it is official. I have just been handed the book. It reads, a little pretty pocketbook. And now they have added this. Intended for the instruction and amusement of little Master Tommy and pretty Miss Polly. Oop, where is she? Is Jane the author? Austin, no. Well, that is it for us. From Hampton Court Palace Stadium in London, this gentle afternoon, July 4th, 1744. Lights out. Miss Austin. In vain I have struggled. It will not do. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Oh, Darcy, she left the bloody booth already. Stick to the ball game. Stick to baseball. Jane is too generous to trifle with me or the notion of a new ball game. My affections for this game and her are unchanged. But one word from Jane will silence me on this subject forever. Give me a break, man. Get a manly hold of yourself, Darcy. Try to show a bit more selfish disdain for the feelings of others. More arrogance. More conceit, man. Women like her love that sort of thing. Okay, folks, we're back. Now, I hope you enjoyed that piece, but here's the point. It's, we're looking for baseball in children's books. After that, do I have to say it? Baseball, American baseball, does not come from a book dedicated to children's amusements. It wasn't the same sport. It doesn't come from a Jane Austen novel either, in which baseball was mentioned. For the record, it's in 1789 when Jane Austen wrote Northanger Abbey, where she mentions baseball. That book would be published in 1817. But we threw in a bit of Pride and Prejudice there for you to imagine what it might be like if baseball was the inspiration for Pride and Prejudice. Strike! Okay, let's go back to our list or lineup on the things that make American baseball baseball. Major strike five, strikes themselves. I'm going to talk about pitching, but I want to talk about the three strikes first because it's the easiest to see the mistake here. One of the things, all these games from Europe in the past, they all talk about this. Oh, there were three misses and you're out. Three strikes and you're out. No, no, no. There is no strike in rounders and all the other pretenders, no matter what anybody tells you. This is a concept issue. In American baseball, as you all know, a strike happens when a pitcher is trying to make you swing and miss the ball. I'm trying to get your butt out. I'm trying to get you to miss. Rounders, that's not the intention. Town ball, that's not the intention. With town ball, it was actually in the rules in the beginning. It is an underhand, gentle toss, folks. 
the fact that some players miss the ball is completely disassociated from what the pitcher throwing the underhand and gentle ball was trying to do. That gentle is a word that describes the pitcher's intention. In rounders, it was not a strike, folks. It was simply a miss. With a miss, you're trying to have him hit it so you can get him out after he hits it. With a strike, you're not trying to let the batter hit the ball. Two different intentions, two different concepts. Now up to the stadium booth for a takeaway. That's why concept is more important than words. If you find a word, you're not looking at the word anymore. You're looking at the concept underneath it. What are they talking about? Because missing is different than a strike. And in some games, if you miss once, you are out. But that's not really fair, is it? Because I could accidentally throw you a bad ball. So that's why you'd probably begin to say, well, you threw a bad ball. You have to give me another shot. So you have a second shot. But you see, on the second shot, you don't really do a good job swinging. So you need a compromise, right? I threw a bad ball the first time. You swung badly on the second one. Let's just call it three, and we're even. That's fair play. And I think that's where the three comes from. I'm certain of that. But you can debate it if you want to. Major strike six. Let me start with a reminder based on the critical relationship between pitching and real American baseball. Let me use an analogy to lock this down. Humankind didn't fly, couldn't fly, wasn't flying till they got aerodynamics right. Baseball didn't exist, couldn't exist, wasn't baseball in its essence till they got pitching right. When they say they had three strikes in these games, they didn't. They didn't at all. Before, it was all about misses. You know, you can't sit up there and wait 16,000 pitches before you hit one. And I don't think it's till 1860 that the real strikes were coming into play. Don't think it's there. In 1860, Jim Creighton becomes what they say is the first superstar. Some say it's because his ability to whiz a ball underhand. He makes it difficult for the batters to hit it. And suddenly batters, they weren't used to it. They had to catch up to this new thing about batting, trying to hit a ball when it was hard to hit. Unfortunately, he only lasted two years because he actually, in hitting a home run, had an abdominal rupture, a hernia, and died about four days later. Let me tell you how important Jim Creighton is. He is probably the most important pitcher of all time because without him, we don't make that transition. Without him, there's even no Babe Ruth. Because what made Babe Ruth was the ability to hit those massive home runs when it wasn't easy to do because of the pitching. That's what made it exciting because it stood him out from every other player. Apparently, there's a lot of scoring in the beginning. Some of these games were decided by who would get to 30 or 40 points first because you weren't intending to get anyone out with the pitch. In 1860, Jim Creighton was starting to shift it from tossing it or throwing it underhand to really pitching the ball, even though he was doing it underhand. That meant that the emphasis was not so much on the batter as on the pitcher. That is the incredible shift that happens because pitching as it is today originated in the United States 
in this game called baseball 38 years after the first official game. These other games from Europe did not have pitching. There is no curveball, no slider. Those aren't even started till 1884. Actually, years after that, in 1846, the first game, they were pitching underhand. In 1883, they decided to allow sidearm pitching in American baseball. And the next year, they allowed overhand pitching for the first time officially. That is when the game changes. The essence of baseball finds its core in pitching. And by extension, batting. It's so obvious, but it's also so important. The key in history is that everything relates to that. So by its very own setup, Rounders was never going to be American baseball because the object was to give the batter the maximum opportunity to hit the ball. And the intention of the curveball is the exact opposite. Pitching is the key, period. So folks, here is the bottom line. If you're not trying to strike a guy or gal out with a pitch as hard as you can throw it, it's not American baseball. 1884 is the true beginning of American baseball. That's when the essence of the sport is there. The Kentucky Derby is not about cow racing. It's about horse racing. That is why Europe is not the source of American baseball. Major strike seven. A nail in the coffins for rounders and town ball and all the other pretenders. For every reason they give that rounders and town ball and all these other pretenders are like American baseball superficially, there are 10 reasons they are not. The essence of baseball is not there. It just sounds good. The legends, the heroes, the reporters, the signed autographs, the leagues, the club teams, none of that is there. So why did I mention that? It's the difference between a sport and a game. Rounders and what they call a derivative of it in the USA called town ball are games, not sports. Side note, if you know the history, they say that town ball was spreading across the USA. No, that is not true, and it's incredibly misleading. It was towns that were the things that were spreading across the USA. And town ball was more community activity at events played in some of those new towns. Think of it like Saturday in the Park, a community game played there rather casually. One side note, why was supposedly rounders in the USA called town ball? Because it was for the towns as a community event. Otherwise, it would be called rounders. Did some people so enjoy those that they tried to play it in between festivals? Yes. But a community game is not a sport. The Massachusetts version of town ball, something they talk about a lot, suggests that it used overhand pitching. No, it did not. Even the rules stated it was an overhand gentle toss. Can you imagine being in the World Series today and then suddenly applying Massachusetts rules for town ball in our pitching? Gently throw it across home plate. Bye-bye. For the record, there's a later article in 1856 that suggests the Massachusetts game was throwing the ball a bit harder. Okay, that's why stories are written, folks. It's like an earthquake. It's news because it was different than expected. 
but Town Ball soon disappeared forever. And even if that was the case, the Town Ball, the Massachusetts game, was starting to pitch the ball a little bit harder. That all happens where? In the USA. Either way, don't let them rewrite a Town Ball overhand toss as a 105-mile-an-hour Chapman pitch. Tenth inning. Tag this. The origin of all of it. And I'm going to talk about the origin of it all. I know if you're a baseball historian, an academic, or some researcher of some kind, you're already pissed at me. You'll want to toss this out. But stop. Think differently. Look at it from an essence or concept point of view. A logical deconstruction of the essence of where this comes from. Once deconstructed, we can use that as a guide. It's the Abbott Costello lesson. What are you looking for? Are you looking for the word baseball in some book or some document or some contract or the essence of baseball found in baseball itself? Regardless of the name, the time, the place, here's where all of those things come from. All of them. And I will say it as a list, then rock through it. Tag, you're it. You're safe. A reason to be unsafe. Cavemen teenagers. Bat and ball origin. Geometry and numbers. So let's start to go through that list or my lineup. One, tag, you're it. Tag is the origin of all of it. Kids play tag. They don't have to read a book on it. It doesn't have to be handed down. They just do it. All kids play. All sophisticated animals play. It's also spectacularly important to animal survival. That's where they develop the skills needed to survive. Most likely really critical for us as well. Does anyone listening to this think the kids in the Roman Empire or the Egyptian Empire did not play tag? Of course they did. Things are true whether written down or not. It's simple human nature. Point number two, safe. If you played tag for even five minutes as a kid, you already know this. It's exhausting, especially if it's nonstop. So kids need a rest, a safe place, perhaps a tree or a stump or some column, perhaps a pedestal of some kind or later the side of a home. Anything I can touch and claim as a safe spot. Number three, a reason to be unsafe. Now, as a kid, you know that once you're on that base or that safe spot, you're not going to get off it. Nobody does. That always becomes the end of the game, right? Okay, well, if you're not going to step away from that base, I'm out of here. I'm going to do something else, like maybe beat the crap out of you for not getting off the base. So they had to devise something to get the kid off the safe base. How about a second base? How about something that makes you go to the other base, like getting a point? How about a ball knocking down one of the bases so you had to go to the other base? How about a bat to prevent you from knocking down the safe base so you don't have to run to the next base? I don't know, but the simplicity is this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and it keeps on going. And it did. The game described in 1796, some referred to as English baseball, always descends into a mass tag game. One team versus the other. 
it is actually in the rules. And it's the part that the writer apparently loved. But let me move on to the next piece, which is number four, cavemen, teenagers. It's what I call a question. Let me ask you to think about it. Did cavemen have teenagers? Yes, they did. And they were not idiots. Rocks, pedestals, sticks, balls, all of them were already there. And if you were a kid and you have something round and a stick around, they had those, of course. At some point, sometime, you're going to play a bat and ball kind of game, even using your hand as a bat, right? Of course they did. That's human nature. So just imagine if you're a five-foot caveman and you're reaching for an apple or some fruit that is eight feet high and you have a stick, you're going to do what? Bat it down. And if your teenage son or brother is around, he'll probably find some fruit lying on the ground and throw it your way. And you're probably going to hit it. It's just human nature. It's like swimming. If there's some water around, people are going to jump in it and try swimming. And keep this in mind, apparently we're so smart today that it's assumed everyone in pre-recorded history was stupid, right? Want proof? Geico made a fortune off of commercials of cavemen upset they were treated like idiots. We all remember those ads. Cavemen and cave women had teenagers and kids that played. Well, what did they play with? Anything they had around. What would you do if you saw a rock? You would pick it up and throw it. Hopefully not at someone but it's something. How about a rock on top of another rock on top of another rock that you were trying to throw down? In other words, how about throwing a rock at a pedestal? Of course they did that. Rocks were used by cavemen and cave women to do stuff. One of those things was to defend themselves. So you can imagine that throwing a rock accurately might be a good thing. It was probably encouraged or taught to them by their fathers. But what do you throw at? You throw it at a tree, a tree stump, a target of some kind. Or you build a target, like a pedestal, which is a group of rocks set up to look like a pyramid. The fact is, they threw it at whatever they decided to throw it at. Point number five, bat and ball origin. We mentioned this in detail. It's too broad a category. But let me just add this. I feel guilty saying the obvious, but there's so many people that have used the bat and the ball thing to prove another bat and ball thing was the source of baseball. No. I don't know if you get the sense of it, but you could make that argument. For me, it's just superficial at best. Are there some influences there? I don't want to give anyone that because it's foundationally based on too broad a reasoning, which would not allow for unrelated developments. Look, no one invented rock throwing, although pitching was developed, you could say, from that. But not really. It's like saying some document is the first to record a man or woman throwing a rock. It means the source of Major League Baseball is from that person? I don't think so. Yet that is what history sometimes is saying. They threw something towards someone who used something to hit it back somewhere and run. So that must be the source of American baseball? Again, I don't think so. Look, I'm oversimplifying their case, but not by much when you look at the physical elements of the sport. Up to the stadium booth for a takeaway. And now you see why I had to use the obvious to get what isn't obvious. 
In the end, it's all obvious. We're back. Six is geometry and numbers. What is four bases in baseball? It is a shape. Break it down to its essence. It's a number. One. Tag. You need a home place. That is the number one. Two. Cricket. You have two bases, a reason to leave one safe spot and go to the next. Three, like trap ball, you have three bases generally in that game. Four, when we go back to our core concept, numbers, one, two, three, what's next? Simply the number four. And rounders, in some of these early games, if Chadwick is correct, sometimes they could have as many or more than eight bases. The city and its geometry is what impacts the shape of the field. The proof is many of these early games thought in terms of round. Think of cities. Even the growing city geometry there would suggest a progression. You run to one base, but it is actually two because of home base. Then perhaps a triangle as you cut across a street. Then ultimately four, a diamond shape. Because if you are in the middle of the street, you are not going to make first base only five feet away to your right. It would not work as a box shape. So logically, in the heart of progressively bigger and bigger cities, a diamond shape would become the natural end of a progression from one to two to three to four for the number of bases used in something like stickball. Remember, by its own description in 1828, rounders was played in the country, not in the city. If you are in wide open spaces, a wide open field, the first thing that comes into your mind is not a diamond-shaped field. It's much more natural for the countryside to suggest a round shape, thus the name rounders. So I clearly state, for the record, a concept modeling essence-based analysis of American baseball suggests, in reality, it did not come from rounders, tutball, English baseball, or from a pretty little pocketbook, or even the Tudor dynasty. So where did American baseball come from? Its name and everything else comes from... That is next. 11th inning, the twist where American baseball really comes from. So in this segment, the ultimate question is where does American baseball come from? But imagine going back in time and saying, hey, Charlie, I really can't play baseball with you today because, well, 300 years from now, this sport is going to be big and I want them to know we created it right here. Okay, I'll forget that. I'll do that tomorrow. I'm coming. Here's the point. Kids, teenagers, don't care about history. They never have. They probably never will. They are not going to go look up how rounders was played in England or London or people who brought some game across the Atlantic. I don't even think we listen to adults today. Why were we going to listen to them back then about some sport that didn't actually exist? No different. A game, just because it has a bat and a ball, does not baseball make it. There are four points to remember. These all center on what this show is about. That is, that some things that aren't obvious are. 
and some things that are obvious aren't. Point number one, American baseball primarily comes from American baseball. And there's a twist there I'm going to get to. Point number two, American baseball also comes from American stickball. Point number three, made in America, the things that come from the USA. Point number four, why we don't call it American baseball, but why we still call it America's game. Let's go through those, starting with point number one. So let me talk about the first statement, because there's a twist in it. American baseball primarily comes from American baseball. If you noticed, I'm not saying from America. The twist is I'm saying from American baseball itself. That is something that isn't obvious until it is. When we apply constant modeling to baseball, here's what you find. At the core of it, the distinguishing feature, and there are many, but perhaps the primary distinguishing feature that changes and revolutionizes the game or completes it, what we know as baseball today, is the overhand pitch. And that doesn't happen till 38 years into the sport we call American baseball. In other words, the very first game in 1846 was the technical beginning of the organizational aspect of American baseball. But it wasn't until 1884, till overhand pitching was officially allowed in the sport, that was a moment the horse is complete. The airplane has an engine, however you want to put it. We move from something that is going towards baseball, which American baseball was, to something that is American baseball. Everything in that sport begins with pitching, and I mean overhand pitching. Fastball, sliders, catching all the statistics that are generated from the pitcher and batter duel. If there isn't overhand pitching, it's not baseball. So if you're even stepping to anything that happened in any other country before 1846, you will not find overhand professional level pitching. And that is the essence of the sport. When we have the overhand pitch, suddenly the sport is actually all there up to the stadium booth for a takeaway. The proof of concept modeling is the fact that after you step away and look at it, it becomes obvious. Everything in history is obvious in hindsight. The internet is obvious in hindsight. Starbucks, Nike, all those things are obvious in hindsight. Even the atom bomb is obvious in hindsight. Even quantum physics at one point will become obvious in hindsight. We're back. Point number two, the second source of American baseball. American baseball also comes from American stickball. Now, when I say stickball, it is a generic term for anything played with a bat and ball in the U.S. before 1846. So when history touches upon the history of baseball, they hardly touch on what we call stickball. The problem is stickball wasn't always called stickball. It's not like somebody back in history said, let's invent a game and you know what? I'm going to call it stickball. But it's usually just play some ball, right? They call it ball. Just some simple name. They weren't thinking about it. This is going to be some great sport someday, so we got to pick a name that's going to last. The second problem here is the fact that it wasn't significant enough to be written about. Just because it's not written about doesn't mean it didn't exist. 
So apparently there are a couple mentions of stickball in games like that here and there, but what it is is a throwaway line. Like saying, you probably had some game, like a bat and ball game in the U.S., played 300 years before the beginning of professional organized baseball. That makes a lot of sense to me because of the nature of the sport. You have to prove that that is incorrect, not the other way around. Stickball wasn't so important that it was front page news anywhere, of course. So that doesn't make it any less real. It's just the nature of it. You're not going to write a full page story or have a sports section on tag. You're just not going to do it. You're not going to document stickball. You're just not. It's just not going to happen, folks. To say or suggest that stickball wasn't played is to suggest that kids weren't kids. It doesn't make any sense. Another kind of interesting thing is that a lot of this forms around some big cities. Cities like New York, a bit of Boston, St. Louis, Philly. What's interesting is the nature and essence of the sport is coming from clubs too that were coming from these cities. And all of that was coming from the spirit of America. Competition, New York City, building a competitive city. We're doing all this stuff. We're building all this stuff. We're creating stuff. We need a break from it. We'd like to organize things. New York is significant for me anyways, because there's a sense of organization there in that city and that competitive American spirit the kind at the core of the American culture, was being brought to this game that they all knew about that was played on the streets. You see, all those guys who created the Knickerbocker rules, that is considered perhaps the most important in terms of codifying the sport. By the way, there's also the Gotham Club, which was nine years before the Knickerbocker Club. For a few of them, it was new to them. But a lot of them had all been playing the street game somewhere and extracted the best of the rules that they heard there and made up new ones that made sense. These were smart guys. These are coming from a New York City. But there's a spirit of competition there that was growing in a city that was growing and very competitive. Team and club formations accelerate the improvements. You want to beat that team? I want a better bat. Longer bat to hit it harder. A better ball. Harder ball to hit it farther. Better rules. More competitive rules. A growing entrepreneurial business mentality accelerates it all as well. There is a memoir about a teenager who is creating leather balls for British officers who are prisoners all the way back in 1782, making 25 cents per ball. That's kind of cool. But for the record, what he describes were not baseballs which were still 50 to 60 years away. Now, what that memoir shows is not that people were writing about British prisoners. Of course they do that. Or about them playing some non-specific ball game. Neither rounders or town ball are mentioned. But what it shows is much more about the American spirit of entrepreneurship. What Spalding, Rawlings, and all these players turned entrepreneurs would be doing a hundred years later in the USA. What it was showing was proof that the U.S. was fueling an entrepreneurial drive. Even back then, the underlying spirit that would drive and elevate it all was already there. 
here's what American stickball brings to the table that none, none of those early versions of baseball brought with it. And that is an elevated American attitude, attitude, sports, the kind of professional sports that people were going to pay to come see that happens here in the USA. None of those other animals were headed to be the Kentucky Derby horse. The American version was. So rounders was never headed that way. Cricket did, but it's a completely different sport. And English baseball, hyphen in between, didn't go that way. German ball didn't. I think part of English baseball was more a professional tag game, by the way. I think I mentioned that because it states it in the rules. Here is one of those amazing but very subtle hints of what was going on. The mindset of those times. That American attitude. If you read some interviews, Will Wheaton comes to mind, cricket was not enough exercise for them. And that is what I mean by the American spirit. Let's maximize every element of this sport. We are all about competition here. I think that's the major difference. And it was found on the streets. I'm going to kick your butt this afternoon. See you soon. That attitude is more important than a footnote or some document that mentions a word that doesn't even mean base as we know it today. Baseball is not about the physical things. It actually is not. It's not even about the rules. It is not. It's about competition, athleticism, and attitude the desire and the drive to win. Let's go play ball and let me kick your butt. That's why it is so much an American sport. Point number three, made in America. Bats, baseballs, gloves, bases, attitude, pitching, and yes, no joke, Abbott and Costello. The evidence is overwhelming. That was all made here. So to bring that all home, forever, let me run through a list of baseball things made in America. American baseballs. Baseballs were first made in America. Every team created their own baseball, but there were significant improvements. Baseball bats, the first were made in the USA, period. It's not a coincidence that in the year overhand pitching is now allowed in professional baseball that the Louisville Slugger suddenly makes its first appearance on the stage of American baseball. Also, it was back in 1869 that the National Association of Baseball Players lays out the rules for what a professional bat should be like. Also, a pitcher and manager, soon famous business owner, Spalding, developed the modern bat around 1906. The others from Europe were more like cudgels or they were more like the wide bats you see in cricket. I think rounders bats came from cricket wide bats to shorten it and make it a little bit rounder. Some historians say that's the reason it's called rounders. I don't buy that. doesn't make a lot of sense, but it could be. Here is the true difference. Believe it or not, you find the difference in a sound. The one created by an American baseball bat striking an American hardball. Driven by the speed of a real overhand baseball pitch. The difference between a cudgel, which is 23 inches, and hitting it somewhere out into the field. And don't forget, a much softer ball. 
and being in a major league park and seeing a professional batter, the best of the best, with a Louisville slugger power a hit over the Fenway Park Green Monster. The power, the sound, the beauty of that is felt by 35,000 people in the stadium. Bases, they come from the USA. That is pretty significant. And why I repeat this over and over is because that's the reason some historians are saying baseball comes from Europe because they had export with the word base in it. Didn't mean base. Big, big deal. Pitching. All the pitching was underhand. Real pitching, that comes from the USA. So bat, ball, base, all come from the USA. Point number four. While we don't call it American baseball, but we still call it America's game. Another twist. It's American baseball, not English, not German, not French, American baseball. But it's not officially called American baseball, and that is significant. Had the sport been based on English baseball, we would have officially called it American baseball to distinguish it, but it wasn't. No, the term American baseball is just for emphasis, but the amazing way language works, the term America's game actually implies something totally different, that there was a deep-rooted synergy between what was happening in the country at that time and what was developing inside this street game. The American spirit, which was infused inside stickball and these American games, would be leading towards the national sport. Truly, America's game. America was a place we had to build ourselves. Remember, Rome was already built. And that attitude, that competitive attitude, was found in the creation of a sport that would turn into a business. It's that concept of athleticism, of getting better and better at something, and that's what is at the essence of the sport. That was developed here on the streets of the cities, here in the countryside. And the city taking it to the next level in terms of giving it some organizational structure, and at the end of the day, a little bit more like a business. And that very last point, yes, it goes back to Avon Costello. The ultimate essence of baseball is also found in what Avon Costello demonstrates for us, which is fun. You want proof? You feel it when you listen to Avon Costello. You feel it when you watch a good game. Why? Because they're both fun. See, Abbott and Costello were professional. They were working hard to perfect their craft. It's so similar to watching a baseball game. The guys, the athletes, the people who are playing baseball were also working harder to perfect their craft. That's why it started to head towards a professional sport. You begin the creation of professional athletes as baseball players. That's Jim Creighton. That's Ty Cobb. Guys who would work and work at getting better at the sport. In other words, their athleticism, athletic ability honed. The level of their professionalism, their athletic skill made it fun to watch. If you're listening to podcasts, it's because you find baseball, baseball history, and the following the teams, following the players, watching the games, all of it kind of fun. 
I'm sure these early games were fun, but not like American baseball. It was as elevated as they can make it. Later, with stadiums, ballpark franks. Let me give you a little side note. A saleswoman, Mary Ann Kirk, won a contest in 1958 for coming up with that name. Inside the company, high-grade food products that made the secret recipe hot dogs for the Detroit Tigers. By the way, I mention that because trivia also makes baseball fun. How fun is trivia? Very. 12th inning. Bat ball? Oh yeah. Proof. Email me at info at conceptmodeling.com if what I tell you next is true. I'd be curious. I'll bet you never thought of this, and yet it's so obvious when you hear this. What are you hearing? You are literally hearing something at the core of the sport. You're hearing the word bat ball in action, how it translates into the material world. And amazingly, you are not hearing bass like this, are you? Bat ball, a core concept found at the heart of the sport. By the way, because of evolution of the bat, you are also hearing stick ball, the concept-based origin and essence of the word, really the concept bat at play. For those of you keeping stats, I'm not saying we should call the sport either stick ball or bat ball. In following the concept model, basically our fossil, I was using bat ball to find true baseball. I didn't know how, where, or even if it would show up, but the concept model suggested it would be out there somewhere and maybe insightful or even important. Then all of a sudden, a home run came my way. And John Thorne points it out in his great book, Baseball in the Garden of Eden. His book points out a 1791 city ordinance prohibiting bat and ball games around the meeting house. That implies that there are a lot of people already playing a game called baseball in the streets. And yes, suddenly there it was, the word bat ball what John called a conundrum. So some were asking, what is bat ball? What is bat ball? It is proof. Why? Because we go back to our concept model and our podcast part one. Those two most obvious questions that we started with. And the fact that our concept model dictated you have to look for bat ball to find American baseball. And that was the whole that is huge because it says several things. First, bat and ball games, what I said I call stickball, were here before the boys' own book and here 37 years before the first mention of rounders in that book. It is also proof about stickball. When you look up stickball online now, it states that it came after Major League Baseball, when the truth is and confirmed by that document in 1791, that stickball, again as a generic term, existed before. 
it's generic because nobody was going to officially call a sport stickball if historians are using just the word baseball, one word, found in a 1744 children's book, when it doesn't even mean baseball as we know it, then they should consider the 1791 city ordinance as proof that a collection of bat and ball games or ball games existed here 37 years before that 1828 book mentions rounders. Games that obviously had been well known before 1791. Second, it mentions several names. This is a direct quote. The bylaws enacted to bar any game of wicket, cricket, baseball, batball, football, cats, fives, or any other game played with a ball within 80 yards of the structure. So there it is. That means that batball as a name, didn't stick even though it was around along with baseball. And that is probably why bat ball didn't stick around. The relationship between a bat and a stick was too close to the street game stick ball. Then there's later, 46 years later, Gotham Club, even the Knickerbocker Clubs, they could have called it by any name. No reason not to. And they probably wanted a little more adult, more sophisticated, more professional name. The name baseball works. But what about the actual word? The word baseball does not come from Europe either. It does not. The reason I say that is because teenagers, young adults, they weren't going looking up history books trying to find it. Think about it. Don't forget this simple point. If the name had been taken from English baseball, they would have called it American baseball. And they did not do that. That tells you that the name was taken from the streets, not from Europe. And if it was coming from rounders or town ball, they would have called it town ball. But they didn't. They called it baseball. So there's a disconnect there. Why were they calling it baseball here? So there's a much simpler explanation a personal note, I sort of got hammered from someone because I, it sounded so simple. Life is simple. You don't need a PhD to come up with a name. You know who came up with the name? Not a PhD. Kids on the street, young adults, came up with the name. How? Well, when they wanted to gather and play the game, there are only a few names you could call. Let's play some ball. That's okay. But that's not really a name, is it? So how do you come up with the name baseball? Well, if you're sitting around a group of kids... Or young adults, someone pops up and says, hey, let's go play. You get the ball, I'll get the bat, we'll find some bases. So when it comes down to it, there are only three words you can pick, but just the most concept-based name of the sport you can have. A little bit like basketball. You could call it dribble ball, you could call it dunk ball, but with the most simple name that works, because it's got to sound good, that's key, is basketball. The same applies to baseball. There are only three words you can use. There were no gloves at the time, by the way. So bat, ball, and base. So let's look at those three words. Base, bat, ball. Ball, bat, base. Bat, ball, base. Bat, base, ball. There it is. 
bat, base, ball. Bat, base, ball. And there you have it. Why was it called baseball? Because it sounds good. That's why. That is an awesome name. It is. You couldn't say bat ball because it's related to stick ball. You can't do that. And that is a big hint that it comes from stick ball. That's it. This isn't quantum physics. It's a question of what sounds good to youth, period. It's simply human nature. The word that is most concept-based but also sounds good is baseball. That is the best by far name for the sport. And it is that simple. Anybody who tells you otherwise, kind of insulted it was so simple, really? This is baseball. Up to the stadium booth for a takeaway. I have a confession to make. You may recall I said, and it is true, that people need the fossil in front of them, we mean a concept model, before doing the research. Without that as a guide, you end up looking for baseball in other games in other places. Then I said, you simply have to look for baseball. But here's what I didn't explain. I didn't explain how you do that. Why? Because the obvious isn't. In other words, it's so obvious, had I told you the secret before, you might have had a tendency to discard it immediately as a twist, as a trick, as a sleight of hand. That is what we all tend to do with the obvious. But there's one lesson you should remember from history. The twist in the successful creation of the first atom bomb was actually a decision to try the exact opposite, a serious 180 degree change of perspective from an explosion to an implosion. And that made the very first Los Alamos bomb work. So in our case, with a fossil in hand, or a concept model in hand, we can now do it the right way. We can do the exact opposite in a serious 180 degree change of perspective. We don't have to look for baseball in rounders. We look for rounders or any pretenders in baseball. When you start that way, all the mistakes become obvious. Why? because it leads to the right questions. Where are the stats in rounders? Where is the foot oriented, the American made base made of sand in town ball? Where is the hard ball in English baseball? I could go on. When you look from our concept model point of view, all of a sudden, all the other pretenders collapse. 13th inning, 2020 hindsight from the 2020 World Series. In part one of this podcast, I talked about the hidden concept in baseball, which is numbers. And that is true. But the thing about it is this. Many of you already know that. It's almost obvious now because so many people have brought that discussion to the surface. But realizing how deep it goes is a different question. Hopefully, these two podcasts combined suggest how deep it really goes. But there is a problem here because there is something else. 
You have the material or physical things like the bat, the ball, the glove, the bases, and so on. Then you have the intangible things or abstract things, the things you cannot touch like base running, pitching, fielding, and batting. And even deeper things like athleticism, competition, winning and losing, heroes, legends, fans, all the things you cannot physically touch. But there's one other number, like a point, where all of those other numbers, all the physical things and all the abstract things that go into baseball seem to intersect. That number is the number one. And the way it points to one word. To explain it, and it's amazing, I can use what happened in the recent World Series between the LA Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays, both excellent teams. A personal note, I have not read all the opinions around how this one won or that one lost, but I am willing to bet, and later I will read them to find some supporting insight, they will all point to this number. It's amazing that the World Series may have come down to one, a series of ones. One man, one decision, one player, one game. Yes, you can include one team too, but most likely it will all be speculated on forever with no resolutions actually. It's about one moment. If you are a baseball fan, you already know that moment. That moment was when they took pitcher Blake Snell out of the game, replaced him with another pitcher. That is the moment that manager Kevin Cash made the decision to replace him. So my reaction to all of this is threefold. The first part is my opinion. The second and third are concept-based. Here is my opinion. I think it's rather simple, but painful. I also think it's what Cash had to do, but it was the wrong decision. Cash had to take Snell out according to the theory that the team was built on and was living on. You could say, and it would be true, the Rays were going to live and die by analytics, or yes, strictly a numbers approach that they were using to run the team and their season. The fact is, they lived pretty well, amazingly well. They shocked the baseball world with their strict and successful adherence to what some say was a ruthless, others say savvy, approach grounded in numbers applied to their team, their season, and their philosophy. By the way, and it's fascinating to me, that is exactly, I mean exactly what Niels Bohr and his team did in the development of quantum physics, which you may know revolutionized the entire world, launching the most successful branch of physics of all time. I will be concept modeling quantum physics in a podcast next year, uh, you know, if I can. <laughs> we'll see. In other words, Tampa Bay stuck to the numbers no matter what. That did two things at that moment. It made Cash's decision very clear, and it left him with no other choice. 
They had gotten to the sixth game of the World Series using that approach. They had proved it could get you there to almost the very top, to the penultimate peak of success. There is absolutely no way they could turn their back on what got them there. And if they left him in the game to continue pitching and he suddenly failed, that is the question everyone would have to ask. You got this far. Why didn't you trust or stick to what got you there? Why? From their approach, their philosophy, their plan, their all, it was the right decision. It just happened to be the wrong decision. How can we say that? Well, one fact is clear. They lost. But there's always some leeway in that statement because we will never know. So my opinion is this. They made the right decision. It just happened to be wrong. It is also not the decision I would have made. And that leads me to who cares what decision I would have made. But really, it leads to this concept. The real question is this. Is everything in life just based on the material, the physical, the physics, the science, the numbers? Related to this podcast, does baseball just come down to numbers? I'm not trying to be flippant here, but the answer is yes and no. Why? Because it all points to another number, another one. One chance at glory. Glory doesn't make sense at all if you look at just numbers, just physics, just physical things. Glory is a concept. Allow me, indulge me, and let me go as deep as possible using what I remind people who are struggling with this thing or that thing in their life. The event that reflects it best for me is Kirk Gibson winning home run with the Dodgers. It was the bottom of the ninth. The Dodgers were down by a run. They had two outs with a man on base and Kirk Gibson coming up to bat. He limps up to the plate because he was injured. But here is my point. If you hit a home run, it may not mean anything. It is actually just a home run. A ball hit over a fence. And if you were up by eight and you hit another home run to make it up by nine and you win, that home run probably means nothing except to the individual player. For the team, it absolutely means nothing. We forget the glory for that moment comes from being down, from being down in the bottom of the ninth, from being down in the bottom of the ninth with two outs. And let me continue from being in the bottom of the ninth with two outs with a player who is injured coming up to bat with the team at the precipice of losing. So I will tell you, my friend, if you want real glory, it often comes from the edge of failure. If you are depressed, you find it in hanging in there another day. If you're about to lose your business, you do it by continuing to fight the next day. Real glory 
comes from all the numbers in baseball going against you. The bottom of the ninth, two outs, down by a run, and you are injured, as we all are, in some way. It's the number one in baseball, elevated by one concept. The concept of glory. One moment, one man, one person, one hit, one home run. The question you have to ask, the question I cannot answer for you is this. Why should all that, the numbers, lead to glory? Unless this thing called glory is real. Unless that ultimately is the essence of all of it. You know, folks, I leave it at that. We started with the obvious and we end with the obvious. Why? Because the obvious isn't. I'm Winston Perez, your host and founder of the Discipline of Concept Modeling. If you want to show support, you can do so by buying my book online or places like Barnes & Noble or on my website, conceptmodeling.com. Some references, John Thorne, 1791 and all that, Baseball and the Berkshires, Baseball, a Journal of the Early Game, Volume 1, Number 1, 2007, pages 119 to 126. Also, John Thorpe, Baseball in the Garden of Eden, The Secret History of the Early Game, 2011, Simon & Schuster. Copyright 2020, Winston Perez. All rights reserved. No portion of this podcast may be used in any manner without the express written permission or consent of Winston Perez. Some elements of this podcast come from Winston Perez's book concerning the nature and structure of concept. Popcorn, peanuts, disruptive technology. Popcorn, peanuts, disruptive technology.